turn with me to John chapter 8 because we're going to continue as I have since January the 1st preaching through the gospel of John and we've come to a very familiar text. A lot of folks uh, love this story and even if they're not as familiar with the Bible they've heard about this woman who was caught in adultery. While reading this story uh, this week and studying the last couple weeks about John chapter 8, it reminded me of the great novel, The Scarlet Letter. How many of you read Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter? Back in, I was made to in school, it ain't like I just grab old novels and read them, Uh, but, and I do love to read, I love to read a lot, but this is a great analogy. I I think that uh, when when I read that story, it brought back a lot of the stories that I had Uh, read in my childhood, or this story that I read in my childhood, teen years. Uh, And and if you've never read it before, I I challenge you to at least go read the summary of what the Scarlet Letter was all about. If you're familiar with the story, you know it involves an adulteress. And she's caught in her adultery, and she has a, a baby, and it could not be her husband's child. And so the community, of course, found out. And because of her transgression, the main character, her name is Hester Prime, uh, she is caught in adultery and she is now to wear a large scarlet A on her clothing. And the A stands for adultery. Everywhere she goes with her and her child, she has to wear this. And, and, and the novel kind of paints a, a sympathetic light to this woman by the name of Hester Prine. And, and especially in the day in which she lived, it was a, a day of, I guess you could say, puritanical, uh, legalistic uh, type, very staunch, almost borderline Amish community that she came out of. And so they certainly frowned upon adultery and, and would have treated her as the offscour of society. And as I was reading John chapter 8, we kind of meet a real life adulteress in our text. And probably more famous, of course, than the fictional one in Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, Scarlet Letter. But like Hester Prime, this woman, we tend to feel some sympathy as we read this, the way she's treated. She's trapped by the schemes of these Jewish leaders and these scribes. And yet she, she is an adulteress. We, we can't overlook that. And I don't believe Jesus overlooked that. But probably deep down inside, this woman was used by the religious crowd and abused And that scarlet A was on her body, was on her clothing. And if we take the chronology of the Gospel of John and its current composition and how it's written, Jesus, if we continue in John chapter 7, about verse 37, we see that He's in the feast. It's a great feast day, the Feast of the Tabernacles. I don't believe that Jesus ever left Jerusalem after verse 37. He's still there because we find Him in verse number 1 down at the Mount of Olives and, of course, early in the morning. There was no gap where Jesus left And then he comes back. He stayed in Jerusalem because these religious leaders, they wanted to shut him up. They wanted to arrest him. They were tired of his teachings. They wanted to bound him and to either put him in jail or to execute him. They wanted this man and his radical teachings done with. They wanted him extinguished. And here he is in the temple. He went to the Mount of Olives and then he goes to the temple. Look at verse 1 with me. The Bible says Jesus went into the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came again to the temple 
And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. This is what Jesus did. He taught in the temple. Notice verse 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law and commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he had heard them not. And so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest and even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw no one but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where are those that thine accusers? With no, hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I con- condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach. I pray that our hearts will receive. Our hearts will be tender and receive the word of God. May our minds go to the place that it should go right now. All the stuff that's after today and all the uh, things that's gone on before today and and even before this service, may it just kind of hush in our minds and may we open up God's word and receive it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach for just a few minutes this morning on the scarlet letter and grace. The scarlet letter and grace. I want to make the first statement And you'll want to maybe take a mental note or maybe even jot this down if you write on the edges of your Bible or you write on a notepad or something. Write this, all of us, like this woman, have been caught in the act of sin and stand condemned by God's holy law. Now these are some things that actually got out of our story, out of our text, because to catch someone in the act of adultery so that it would hold up in a Jewish trial so they could be maybe executed was no small feat. According to the law, the witnesses actually had to see the act Happened. They could not just assume that it happened. They could not just see her leave a room or even see her lying in the bed with, with the man. They actually had to see the act in order for it to stand in trial so that they could actually make a decision. And though these compromising circumstances such as seeing a couple coming from a room or, or maybe uh, being with someone, the witnesses actually had to see so that it would hold up in testimony. James Boyce, a, a great commentator, he said, under these conditions, the obtaining of evidence in adultery would be almost impossible was the situation a setup. So it's very likely that the scribes and the Pharisees had to trap. They had to catch this woman so that they could trap Jesus on the the horns of a dilemma and accuse him. And either he would agree that that she needs to be stoned and dealt with or uh, he would look like he's soft on adultery and of course it would uh, make him uh, break the law and he would show some mercy. and, And they were hoping that one of the two would actually catch him so they could actually point out his faults. And we've all been caught in the act of sin. 
every one of us. There's nobody here this morning that has not been caught in the act of sin. We've all been humiliated by our sin. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? I'm talking about you've been caught in a lie before. You've been caught maybe trying to cheat somebody out of money. You've been caught looking at something you shouldn't be looking or saying something that you shouldn't be saying. We've all been humiliated by our sin. We've all been caught... And in this story that I just read to you, these 11 verses, this woman had not only been caught in the act of adultery, but then she was dragged to the temple. Now think about this. She's caught in the act, staged. They catch her and they drag her, probably barely clothed, if clothed at all. And they drag her to the temple. And not only that, they stand her before the most holy person and sinless person that has ever lived. This woman was caught and drugged. And she was humiliated. And this was in the temple. Crowds of people are watching. And many of whom would have known her to make matters worse. She's accused before the godly righteous teacher Jesus Christ. But even if we manage to to keep our sin hidden, you understand this, uh, fellow Christians, from the public view, or we keep our sins hidden from even the church, you understand that we stand before God and He sees every sin. See, He knew the sin before it ever happened. He knew the sin even though it could have been covered. He knows every secret sin. He knows every swear word that mutters under our breath. He knows every bad thought and everything that we think hatred that simmers in our heart toward another brother. Jealousy. I was driving up the gravel road, the the church road that we come up to connect our campuses and I was coming and I seen, I I got a little envious in my heart. I saw a Jeep Gladiator in the parking lot. That's the Moby color, that I, the Gobi Desert. It's called, I saw that one. Who's that belong to in here? Raise your hand so we can pray for you. Is that yours? Let's talk after church. And This man is right with the Lord. That is a beautiful Jeep. And I, love, I had to find out who it belonged to because there was no way I was going. I love that. And, and by the way, we're not supposed to lust, but I, I was having a hard time on the way up. Just kept looking, and I'm like, how does that belong to? Beautiful. Oh, it's gorgeous. I just had to say, you know what, though? Our secret desires, our thoughts, you know who knows them? God does. We can cover them up. You can come to church and look like a Christian, and, and but we, we don't know. I can't look in your heart. I can't look in your mind. Neither can you look at ours. But God knows. And by the way, that ought to humble us. It ought to make us aware of our actions So all of us have been caught in the act of sin. Let me say this, that religious people are just as guilty of sin as openly immoral people. Religious people. See, the problem is we tend to look on this woman in John chapter 8 in this story as a great sinner. And we we, we see her, she's caught in adultery. But we tend to overlook the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees are just as wicked. What they are doing to this young lady. Now we can't say for certain, but probably she was a young girl. In the law of Moses, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 22, the penalty for adultery was death for both partners, which makes me think, where was the man in all of this? 
Both were guilty of adultery. That means that, that, that somebody possibly was paid under the table and, and said, hey, if you'll catch this and you'll do this, we're trying to catch Jesus, we'll give you a little bit. Yet they bring her to the temple. And, and they had. And by the way, if they had cared anything about her, they could have held a private custody and they could have done some things right there and brought some formal charges against her without making it a public display. But you know what? These people don't care about her. This religious crowd did care nothing about what she had done. She was just a pawn in their scheme to trap Jesus. But even more seriously than that, they're sinning against this woman. These religious leaders were also sinning against the sinless Son of God. It's one thing to sin against that woman over there, but she is a sinner and she is doing something wrong. But to sin against the Son of God, that is a dangerous thing. And here's their aim. Their aim was to destroy Jesus and they were using a woman. And guess what? They were using Scripture to do it. See, that's a dangerous thing about religious, legalistic people. Is they will know the Bible, but as long as it actually is in their favor. The Bible doesn't go both ways for some of those folks. Actually, they'll preach to you and they'll show you in Scripture without actually letting it ever come into them. So it's almost like the Bible goes out, but it never goes inward. You know this, the Bible actually works both ways. And when you're about to use the Bible to make yourself look better than the person, just remember, you've got to look in the mirror at some point, and you're going to have to look in and see that the Bible actually works both ways, and you're going to have to use it on your own. See, religious people, they sometimes are even more guilty of sin than openly immoral people are. And this is very common in Christian circles because people use their Bibles for their own selfish ends to judge others and, and to make themselves look more spiritual and never apply the Word of God to themselves. And so it's often religious people, those professing to know Jesus Christ, who are just as guilty as sin as some of the immoral folks Right, let me say the third thing. God's holy law condemns us all. In, in Romans chapter 3, that's what Paul said. In Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3, Paul actually shows us that pagan Gentiles and religious Jews are both sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. You know what that means? That means religious people. That means uh, Pharisees. That means the drunk on the street, the dope addict. That means the adulterer. And that also means the pastor. For all have sinned. We're all in this together. We all are sinners. And they use the Bible for their own sinful purposes. And we need to see ourselves in this story. It convicts us all of our sin. And this story also has an important question. Listen to this question. If God is full of love and grace, how can He show mercy to sinners and yet uphold His holiness and justice? How does He do that? Well, here's the second thing that I want you to see is this. God's grace and love do not negate His truth and justice. Now listen to this. God's grace and love do not negate His truth and His justice. See, nowhere in this story that we just read 
Does Jesus ever excuse this woman's sin or condone her lifestyle or what she's done and yet He shows her grace? So he, he doesn't condone it. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He shows her grace. Let me say that Jesus deals with sinners first by applying God's law and love and truth to them first. The scribes and the Pharisees, they came armed with the law. I mean, they had Moses' writings underneath their arm and they came charging in, dragging her to the temple. And, 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 and Jesus, look at verse 5. Here's what they, they came armed to Jesus. They were ready to trap Him Because it says, now Moses in the law commanded us. They're they're stating to Jesus what Moses said, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? What are you going to say? They kept saying, this is the the test to him. This was just to catch Jesus. This was what they brought to Jesus in verse 5, a question. And then look at verse 6, and they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. So they wanted to catch him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he had heard them not. Now this was a careful and deliberate response that Jesus had. And instead of, of making an immediate verbal response, instead of Jesus losing his temper or, or, or coming up bold and and, and, and lashing back at these disciples or these, uh, uh, these uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees, he stoops down and he writes on the ground with his finger, presumably in the dirt on the ground. And the Bible says this, as though he had heard them not. I want you to notice his actions in verse 6. He stooped down. He humbles himself. It, it indicates humility. Jesus didn't react with anger. Jesus didn't react with outrage. He he didn't scream at these Pharisees. He stooped down. And then he stooped down. It's a low posture. It's identifying with the humiliation of this woman. This woman was drugged, literally. And no doubt by this point she's crying, laying on the ground. And Jesus, instead of speaking down to her, he actually comes to where she's at. Aren't you glad that he came to where we were? I couldn't get to him. I can't stand on the level with Jesus. But he stooped down and came to where she was. But then he begins to write. I've been asked this already this week. What do you think he wrote? I don't know. There's lots of things that's out there that you people can use and and if we're not careful we'll put something there that's not there and it creates a great deal of subjectivity and if we're not careful we'll actually believe that Jesus wrote this certain thing and and, and we all can speculate but we've got to be careful so I won't go there but some think that Jesus actually doodled in the dirt this is the only time in the Bible that you find Jesus writing anything isn't that amazing in all the gospels this is the only occurrence That Jesus writes something. And yet He writes. And people have tried to wonder what He he wrote. Some think that Jesus simply stalled for time. Some, Some think that Jesus wrote the passage in the law that condemned the adulterous woman. Some think that Jesus wrote a passage like Exodus chapter 23 about not putting your hand to the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. 
Some think that Jesus wrote the names of the accusers. Some think that Jesus wrote the sins of the accusers. And some think that Jesus followed Roman judicial practice and wrote out the sentence before he said it. But we're not really sure. The Greek word used for write is the word grapheme, which is used in other places in the Bible. It actually means to write down a record against someone. So Jesus begins to write, and though it says here in verse 6, as though he heard them not. So think about this in your mind. Jesus stoops down, he begins to write as though he did not hear them. He almost ignores them because he despised, maybe I'm thinking because he despised what they were doing. See, understand this, Jesus knows the hearts. He knows their intentions. And Jesus ain't going to give you any time if He knows your heart ain't right. And so He's not dealing with them. He's not even listening to them. And I believe here, I believe that we see on display what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about the meekness and the gentleness of our Savior. It doesn't get any more gentle. He is so gentle and so meek. Not weak, meek. Meek and lowly and gentle. And the bottom line is the text doesn't tell us at all. We're just kind of speculating what he wrote and and really what his actions was. Jesus may have been giving the hypocritical accusers enough rope to hang themselves. Because here's what he says in verse 7. He gets back up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now here's what I believe Jesus, don't miss this. Here's what I believe Jesus was using against them. Exactly what he said in Matthew chapter 7. Will you turn with me there? Matthew chapter 7. Look with me what Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verses 1 through verse number 5. Matthew 7 verse 1 through verse number 5. He says in verse 1, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam, the log, that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite. Thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye, the splinter. He said, you're worried about the splinter that is in your brother's eye when you yourself have a log, a beam. We got beams, we got wooden beams in our building right here. Think about how big this beam is, that's a huge beam. And Jesus is saying, get that big beam while you're worried about a little splinter. You're making a big deal when you yourself have a problem. And Jesus actually says in verse number 5, He he says this to them uh, in verse number 7 rather, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Any of you worthy to throw a stone at her who feel like you are sinless? Who feel like you have clear vision to see. Who feels like you can actually pick up a stone and could do it. In other words, these hypocrites had a huge problem in their own eyes. 
And they actually, Jesus, and by the way, you couldn't trap Jesus. Oh, no. He's like, if any of you, you, you men here, and by the way, if you study the Pharisees out and what they were involved in, what they were guilty of, oh, it was disgusting. It was terrible. Not only were they fakes and phonies a lot in front of people, but they were so conniving behind the scenes. And Jesus, listen, instead of falling at Jesus' feet in, in this invitation, as Jesus just said a few words in this text, that's the only words that he actually said, they left him. They just leave. Notice what he says in, in, uh, in verse number 9. And they, which heard it. They just heard Jesus. And being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Hey, can I say that Jesus gives the law to the self-righteous, but offers grace to broken sinners who repent. Now, it doesn't say that this woman ever repents but like I said earlier, Jesus knows her heart and the way that he spoke to her only gives us the indication that this woman's life was changed. And these Pharisees, listen, they leave unrepentant. They walk away. They're not changed. They're going to try to connive another plan. And you see that all through the scriptures. They're already walking away and they should have been humble. They should have fell at the Savior's feet. They should have said, hey, I'm, I, I'm sorry for what we have did. But they did not. See, the law can reveal your sin. We see that in, in Romans chapter 3 verse 20. But it cannot give you grace. The law can reveal our sin. If you read the law and you read on what we couldn't do and how we had to abide by that, Joseph, there is no way that we could ever keep the law. The law had no grace. If you picked up a stick on the Sabbath day, you were executed. If you talked back to your mom and dad ever, you were executed just like this. If you fumbled your life and made a mistake, there was no grace. You were stoned. But Jesus did not come to bring the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law and bring grace. Grace says, hey, the law says you can't. Grace says you can. And yet Jesus... Throughout the Gospels, he's confronted with the self-righteous leaders of their sins and was repentant. Granted, in this story, there's no direct statement from the woman that she's, she's changed. But the gracious words, I, I believe it infers that we can believe that she did. This isn't cheap grace. God's justice must be upheld. And, and he can be both gracious to sinners and yet uphold his justice. By no means is... Our Savior winking at sin. No, by no means is our Savior turning a, a deaf ear and a blind eye to sin. But then the third and final thing is this. God's grace is the basis for a holy life. I want you to look what He does in verse 10. And when Jesus had lifted up Himself and saw none but the woman, He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Where are they at? Hath no man condemned thee? Verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus said to the guilty woman, Your pardon is not dependent on your behavior. Your pardon is the motivation to change your behavior. Hey, listen, 
If forgiveness depends on having a perfect track record, no one could obtain it. Nobody, including myself, nobody could obtain it because we all sin. So God grants us forgiveness as a free gift to all that put their trust and faith in what Christ did on the cross and through His resurrection. That is the free gift of grace. His free grace then becomes the motive to live a holy life. Not for our holiness, not for us to look holy in the eyes of men, but to actually bring glory to God. And Paul says in Romans 6, 1 and 2 that, and I'm paraphrasing, shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Basically, that, 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 uh, uh, that grace may uh, increase. May it never be said how have we, uh, the grace of God has appeared to us. As Titus, I believe, cha- chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, it's appeared unto all men, bringing salvation. So guess what we ought to do? God's amazing grace is the motivation to a life that is holy. I want you to understand this morning that we're all sinners. And like this woman, maybe you're not an adulterer. Maybe an alphabet of scarlet letters could be pinned to your chest over maybe whatever you've done. But the good news is that the gospel of Jesus has not come to condemn you. The gospel of Jesus has come to save you. To save you from your sin. He died on the cross. He died in your place. He rose from the dead. And the very death that cursed you, He conquered by His resurrection. And because of what He's done for us, we now have the opportunity to repent. And I believe in repentance. I believe that if we're in sin, we ought to, we ought to repent and change. Not only turn, but change our life. And at the end of Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, Hester Prine dies... And she's buried near the man in whom she had committed adultery with. And in that graveyard, both of them, they placed a headstone on, shared a a headstone, and they put the, the scarlet A on their headstone to identify them even in their death that she was an adulteress and here lies an adulterer. For those of us who believe in the gospel. For those of us who have turned to Jesus for salvation when we die. They could very well put an A on our tombstone as well. They could probably find and dig up some dirt because we're dead. We can't defend ourselves. And people could say whatever. And if somebody accuses you of something, I'm sure they could stick a big old A on our tombstone. But it wouldn't stand for adultery. It wouldn't stand for addiction. It wouldn't stand for arrogant or even angry. If you're saved, it will stand for atoned. Atoned. All of our sins, whatever creed, whatever color, whatever kind, were atoned for By the blood of Jesus Christ. And when God sees me, He doesn't see my A. He sees the blood of His Son. You say, Pastor, you have no idea what I've been involved in in my life. 
but I know what He has done. And this woman could leave different. Oh, she came drugged to Jesus by her accusers, but when she left, she left a child of the King. Free pardon. She saw someone who didn't condemn her and scream at her and point fingers like the others. She actually saw someone who stooped to where she was. I'm thankful that when we could not get to him, he came to me. Old Squire Parsons had it right. He came to where I was and he stooped down and he loved me. I've shared this with you before, but I, I'm, it's been a long time. Many of you are new to our church, and I want to share a little bit of my testimony. It's not the testimony that you typically hear from someone, and I'm not, God knows it's by the grace of God, but it's not the testimony that you even maybe presuppose in your mind. I've shared this with you before years ago and it's kind of struck with me all my life and I've shared this to all the youth meetings that I've preached at, at least a lot of them. It kind of helped me walk in the holiness, not saying that I'm holy, but that I've tried in my life to please the Lord. When I was in high school, like any other high school student, I was tempted by many sins by many sins. I'm thankful we didn't have cell phones. I'm thankful we didn't have all kinds of things that kids have today. But I was still tempted by sins, as many as you were. And I knew many guys that I went to school with who were involved sexually with girls, which tempted me to do the same. And by the way, I went to Christian school my whole life. You say, Pastor, Christian school? Oh, oh. Have you not paid attention? It happens there just as much. Also, some of my friends would get drunk and go to parties. I had the opportunity to join them and drink many times. I think that I was a Christian at the time, Brother Joseph. I mean, I, I got saved at the age of 13, but my, my spiritual walk was very weak, very weak at the best. I took for granted a lot of what I was raised in. I was raised by a preacher. I was raised by godly parents, godly parents in a wonderful church. I wasn't walking closely to the Lord in my childhood, so, but, but in spite of my weak spiritual life, I never actually got involved in those sins. I, I, was, I didn't have premarital sex with anyone before marriage. I never drank any, never had any alcohol to my lips at all. I've never, don't know what it tastes like, don't want to. Never had it. See, teenagers from all over, they, they, they come to these youth rallies and these conferences and they feel like you've got to have this testimony of, hey, I've partied and I drank and I had premarital sex, but then God changed me. And boy, I've, and, and listen, I love that. I'll rejoice with you because many of you have that testimony and that's great. But it doesn't have to be that way. It don't have to be that way. You don't have to experience the pleasures of the world. You don't have to go to Egypt and understand that God's grace is sufficient. Hey, there was nothing that made me better than that. It was God's grace. I'm not better than anyone else. I just, I don't know that lifestyle. I can't identify with it. 
I don't understand. I, I understand. Listen, I had an uncle last year who died of fentanyl poison. I had another uncle who served time in the penitentiary. I, my, my grandfather served time, and I love him, and, and he's, he's in heaven now. He changed his life in his older years, but lived a rough life. Never met my grandpa because he drunk himself to death. I know what sin can do to a family, and I hate it, but can I tell you something? God's grace. You say, Pastor, why did you never partake in though those were very strong pools in my life? Can I give you a good reason? Y'all listen. I loved my mom and dad so much. And I knew that if my dad ever found out that I drank alcohol, that I partied, and that I had premarital sex, it would devastate him. I wish that I could tell you, that, Brother Lee, that I, I didn't do it because I love Jesus. But it wasn't even that at the time. It was that I did not want to break the heart of my father. What is grace? That father, and by the way, his love would have not changed toward me. My dad would have still loved me if I would have done those things. I love him deeply and I still don't want to disappoint him. But can I say this? What is grace? My daddy loves me. And I love him. And I'm not doing these things because I got to do it in order to love him or him love me. He loves me despite me. I do them because of his love for me. It doesn't give me a license to say, yep, that's my dad and he loves me so I can do whatever I want to do. He loves me and there's nothing that can separate his DNA from my DNA. He'll be my dad till I die. And he would. And he would love me. But guess what? When you live a life that is pleasing to the Father. And you say, you know what? I can't partake in that because he's watching. And I don't want to break his heart because he sent his son Jesus to die. For that sin that I'm about to commit. And the sins that I have committed. And I don't want to break His heart. You want to know what grace is? Grace is living it. Holiness is not to say, hey, look at me. I've never drank alcohol. Look at me. Who cares about that? Look at me. and Look at what I've accomplished. No, no, no. My dad at the age of five years old lost. My grandmother lost. My grandpa was a drunk. He wouldn't come home for days. My my dad crawled up on my grandma's knee. They were not in church. They had never heard preaching like this. They didn't know nothing. She saw, he saw tears running down my grandma's face and what it did, alcohol did to her. And my, my dad, at age of five years old, climbed up on my grandma's lap and said, Grandma or Mom, if it makes you happy, I'll never drink. Lost. No church. No God in that family. He didn't get saved. He was 15, 10 years later. You know what my dad said? He's almost 70 years old now. My dad said, I've never tasted it. I've seen lives destroyed by it. And if you're sitting in here and you say, oh, I can have a little sip here. So, hey, that's fine. You answer to God one day for that. I'll love you just the same. But I'm staying away from it. You'll never be a drunk if you never taste it. I'm not. 
I've seen too much destruction, too much poverty, too many children without mothers and fathers, too many wrecks on the interstate, too much. No matter what you've done in here, no matter what you're guilty of currently or in the past, I'm thankful that God's grace is sufficient and covers. There's no boundaries. There's no line. You say, well, I've crossed the line. Hey, I believe God has a deadline and He'll take you out if you just refuse to repent and you're a child of God. You belong to His. You keep on playing with sin. Hey, I don't want to make God mad. That ain't even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about some of you in here sat here and you think, I am a mess. Hey, Newsflash, we're all messes. We're all messes. We're all messed up, broken. You say, well, you sound like you just you were a church boy your whole life. I was a lost church boy for the first 13 years. And then I played a part for about another 10 years, like I just by name only. Church. I'm thankful this morning that it's God's grace and this is how it should work in our hearts. Like this adulterous woman in John 8, I was guilty, I was condemned before Him, but rather than condemning me because of of His grace, He loved me and died for me in my place and offers this to you, a full pardon. And since it cost Him so much, I can't take His grace cheaply. I can't sin and shrug it off. I can't. I can't just sit there and say, well, you know, he'll get over it. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads.